Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast for therapists about the things going on in our fields, the things that we do in our practices. We dabble quite a bit into law and ethics as we talk about these things. And from the very top of this episode, I'm going to give a little bit of a content warning that we're going to discuss some child abuse stuff. And today we are discussing a case out of California that has a therapist facing some disciplinary actions. Uh, the California Board of Behavioral Sciences had a decision that took effect on March 31st, 2022 about Barbara Dixon, a licensed marriage and family therapist who's now on probation. And this is due in large part to not reporting child abuse, not doing record keeping and having not one, but two child clients ultimately die. So we are going to talk about in this episode, our responsibilities as therapists, the interactions between the clients that we see ourselves, the agencies that we work for, and our mandated reporting duties. Now, normally when we talk about situations like this, we do offer some privacy to accused therapists. This is a little bit different because this has been in the news. We have some stuff that we'll post in our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com where this therapist is named by name, uh, specifically in an LA Times article here. So if this it does seem to deviate from some of our other podcasts in the past by naming a therapist, the reason why is that this seems to be part of the public news cycle at this point. Katie, when did you first start hearing about this case? I'm not quite sure. With LA County, oftentimes there are DCFS or therapist stuff that show up in the news because children die. And I think part of it in this is something where beyond the scope of this podcast, LA County Department of Child and Family Services has been historically underfunded and or overworked. And I think also inefficient. I think there's just a lot of stuff going on there. I think that there have been great social workers I've worked with there and, and social workers. I, I joke, there's like drunk guy that's on the phone answering the child abuse hotline that refuses to take anything and thinks that parents should be able to beat their kids. So I, I think there's a wide array of things that I've been aware of over time. I think I had heard about these child deaths around the time that they happened. But on April 13th, within, when this article about Barbara Dixon came out, I, I saw it 
forwarded it to you. And, and that's why we're talking about it. I think the the part of this that I feel hardest to to really grapple with is just the, it's just such a shame that these kids were in these situations. There was a therapist who had a little bit of an eye into the situation and did not act. I don't think that's the only thing that would have changed things, um, certainly. And even had, uh, in one of the cases I was looking at the timeline, even had the, the report happened uh, with the timelines for the DCFS, it's, it's questionable whether they would have been able to save him. But I, I just, to me, the fact that this is part of our work, I think is hard to, to take in sometimes. I had first seen an LA Times article in 2019 about Barbara Dixon when she first testified that she didn't report the suspected abuse to authorities. And this has been a case that's kind of been on my radar for a while here Mm -hmm. and have kind of periodically checked in on this and in the sometimes slow wheels of investigations and reaching conclusions on these kinds of things. It does take several years for evidence to mount up for the appropriate defenses to be tried to be made in these kinds of accusations and stuff. And seeing this kind of fully come to fruition here puts a end note on this. But to speak to some of the details of this case and to kind of put things into perspective as to why this is so important for us We're going to go through some of the details here, and this is from the stipulated settlement available on the California Board of Behavioral Sciences disciplinary actions, and we'll also include a link to this in our show notes as well. But the therapist, Barbara Dixon, had been working for a nonprofit organization, Hathaway Sycamore Child and Family Services, who had a contract with the Los Angeles County Department of Child and Family Services. And as an associate, the therapist would go and see children in their homes. And she had provided in-home therapy for an eight-year-old child in 2013. And this child was originally referred uh, to DCFS by the child's teacher and seems like a pretty quick response and getting into therapeutic services. About a month or two into treatment, this child, according to the case notes, had visible injuries on his body. And the therapist had observed that he was limping and had a black eye. He spoke at a low pitch. And when questioned about it in front of his mother, the child repeated his mother's account that he had fallen off of a bicycle. The session notes did not indicate that the respondent questioned the mother and child separately. And the mother, according to the respondent, was supposed to provide a doctor's note of treatment with the client's injuries at the next scheduled session, but the mother missed the next session and there was no treatment notes of receiving a doctor's note, no follow-up about asking about it, no follow-up discussion with the minor or the mother regarding the injuries. About two to three weeks after that was the last in-home session. A week or so after that was a telephone conversation with the mother to schedule a termination session. And less than a week after that, the child was beaten by the mother and her boyfriend and died two days later. 
Katie and I have both worked with children, Katie more so within the Department of Mental Health System. I've worked largely with kids, both in agencies and in my private practice for years afterwards. But what stands out to you amongst all of this as things that really needed to happen here? Like, just give me kind of first responses here. I think there's a lot of pieces to it, and I'll, and there's some understanding of what happened from Barbara Dixon's side as well as what was missed. And so just to add a couple more details, uh, according to Barbara Dixon's testimony, I think in 2019, she was told by a supervisor, at least she claimed she was told by a supervisor not to report abuse in either case. So we're, we're talking about the first one. The second one, I think, has a similar flavor. So we'll see if we'll have time to talk about them both. But I think this is there's enough here to have, I think, a reasonable conversation. When I look at the account of this kid coming in with these injuries said it was a bike injury or a bike, you know, fell off his bike. Uh, and there was, there was some injuries that didn't seem to quite align with that. You and I talked beforehand and said, I've had a lot of bike accidents and never did I have a black eye. And I think that's fair to say. And I think in the article, apparently uh, later she went on a walk with this child and, and after initially believing that it was a, uh, kind of a fallen off the bike kind of injury. She was a little bit concerned, but didn't follow up and didn't report because the agency told her not to. I think it's one of those things where there's that yucky feeling in in your gut at the pit of your stomach where you're like, this just doesn't feel right. It's clear from how she's described it that that probably was there. And there was also this element, this permission not to report by a supervisor, at least according to that account. And so, unfortunately, this feels very familiar because I think there's been a lot of times where I've had supervisees or or even supervisors who are coming to discuss, you know, this was when I was working in community mental health, but would come to discuss these things. And there was, there was a threshold point where it was like, okay, absolutely, everybody knows to report, but there's some some gray areas where people weren't sure, like injuries that theoretically could have been someone falling off their bike or things like that. I think the difficulty with this one is this feels like it really goes beyond that threshold of being reportable. And I think people have a fear of reporting. And, and I think some of these fears are, are well-founded because of how systems can be very harmful to marginalized communities or typically marginalized communities. But I think this fear of reporting, whether it's the hassle or the discomfort or the impact on the relationship with the family, I think keep people from reporting stuff that fall in that gray area. But the fact that that this was beyond that, where there was physical injuries, he was limping, he had a black eye, like it's something where there was, th this went beyond that point. And, and that's really worrisome. And I, I think we can feel completely vindicated, say like, of course, it's wor worrisome. This child died, you know, like a month later. I, I, I try to put myself in, in Barbara's shoes and I, I can understand the hesitance, especially as a pre-licensed individual saying like, I, I just don't know. And I'm getting guidance that I shouldn't. And so to me, I, it, it feels, I can't think of a better word. It feels yucky. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out of network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions 
and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. As many of our listeners know, I am a professor of law and ethics at California State University, Northridge. I also sit on the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists Ethics Committee. I am speaking for neither of those organizations, but framing this within some of the background knowledge that comes with being in those positions. I hear from a lot of pre-licensed people in our line of work, are putting ourselves out there, are connecting with people in the community. And I, I hear them wrongly state that I'm working under somebody else's license. This falls on them. And in law and ethics classes that are typically taught first semester, where there is a focus on child abuse assessment and reporting, I cannot emphasize enough that decisions like this in this case really do indicate that it is your responsibility no matter what your agency says that it and that is part of why this emphasis is on the individual so much is you are the front lines ones who are responding and people can and do get punished for not following through on their individual licensee or registration responsibilities as mandated reporters. Yeah. And unfortunately, it has taken children dying to bring this emphasis up to really put the onus back onto you as the individual. And yeah, there should be, you know, some sort of responsibility of agencies that have policies like this in place of not reporting. I have quit working at agencies. I I have stopped working at agencies when I found out that their policy is don't report unless the child's bleeding. I have worked at agencies, and this speaks to a huge part of this other thing that's going on in this case, is agencies that are document as little as possible to absolve us of responsibility. And I have long held that is the agency's way of putting the responsibility on you as the individual. And in this case, that seems to really be holding true. Sure. And, And to me, there's no mention of the agency in the official BBS document with the decision and the, the agency. And, and I, had training at Hathaway Sycamores. I guess it's now called Sycamores. Like I, I, I had no negative interactions with Sycamores. I didn't hear a negative reputation of Sycamores. So I can't speak to whether or not that was their policy. It was not something that I had heard, but it, but it, 
so many agencies have had that policy of don't report unless they're actively bleeding or report if if there's anything more than an open hand on the bottom. It seems like it's we've got black and white uh, tactics for different agencies on how they decide what people report. But to me, the the fact that this clinician at first said, hey, it was the agency. They told me not to report. And then the the agency said that's not the case. I, I have to look back to see exactly how that was responded to. But to me, it is very easy as a pre-licensed clinician to think that you are not going to be held responsible for what's yours, but you absolutely will be. And I think it's it's something for supervisors too. I mean, the supervisor's not mentioned in this. I don't know that there's a way to figure out who the supervisor was. <laughs> we'll, we'll post another article here about the supervisors were dismissed from criminal charges in this case. And uh, this is an article from July of 2020. So they were dismissed in this case. Okay. So the supervisors, even though people tell supervisors, this person's working under your license, you're responsible. Well maybe not as much as we thought. So I think all folks should be holding on to the responsibility to do what needs to be done. But to to finish up this first point, if you are a clinician, pre-licensed or not, it is your responsibility to manage those uh, those mandates. The other big piece of this is documentation. Yes. Everybody's favorite part of this, but so many aspects of this, you know, there's a failure to do an appropriate child abuse assessment here. And it was documented that it was done in an incomplete way that does not reflect the standards of care of working with children. And, you know, as Katie, you were mentioning earlier that when you work with kids, you kind of get a sense of what normal injuries are and what no, yeah. what abnormal ones are. Scrapes and bruises on elbows and knees, those are consistent with falling off of a bike, as you said. Black eyes, very much not so. And I've got children myself at home. There's, you know, just bruises that show up just for being like a six, seven, eight, nine-year-old kid that, yeah. you know, even they can't really explain. But it's why we spend so much time of here's what an appropriate and abuse assessment actually is because it's not only looking at what the injuries are but also how the child talks about them and that seems to really be missing in this case at least as far as the documentation that was provided of these case sessions also emphasizing here that when you put that things need to be followed up on you should follow up on yeah. them and document them because lo and behold, people can and do get into major trouble. And I can't stress this enough. People die. Yeah. Yeah. In my reading of the timeline for this, this case, it seems possible that this clinician started digging a little bit, required, requested, required a doctor's note, said that in the notes. And so the the documentation is both more than maybe if you're wanting to hide it, didn't do that well, but if you're wanting to fully document it, it wasn't sufficient. 
But it seems like that clinician was trying to take some more steps to follow through and then did not, and the, and the family failed out of treatment. And so the, I think this other piece, and this is the part that I, I find difficult because I think we do have a responsibility and, and the child abuse report would have, would have followed through on that responsibility. But I think when we don't have sufficient information and a family fails out of treatment, we can still feel responsible, but it may not be possible for us to actually go through and, and, and make a report if there's not sufficient information. And so I think to me, I go back to what I talked about in, you know, our now clinicians have to document every fucking thing. And then also the previous one where we were talking about a different citation. I think that when we see that clinicians are overworked, have really high caseloads and are not potentially timely with their documentation, potentially don't remember they're supposed to be following through on things if you know there's there's a lot of times where yeah it's like oh yeah that sucks but like as you mentioned like there are times when us not being able to be on the ball means that kids die because we've missed something or we didn't follow up on something so to me i i guess there's three different points i was making so i'll start i'll i'll, I'll dive into one which is this notion of at what point does it become a responsibility because if if families fail out of treatment if we don't have enough information we can't be held responsible for that if you're following through on what you're supposed to be following through on of course of course i'm not saying that this this applies in this case necessarily it looks like it doesn't but i i think there's there's folks that are going to go to like oh well i'm totally fine and aren't and i think there's going to be those of us (laughs) And I say like me, where I'm like, oh no, you know, there was so there was a kid I had a slight, slight worry about, and I started digging in, and the family failed out, and now I don't, now I don't know what happened. Am I responsible? <laughs> You're responsible. In in my teachings to all of my law and ethics students on this, you as an individual holds, and, and especially in private practice, you as an individual holds very little control over a family. Yes. Your responsibilities in those escalating situations is if they're bouncing out of treatment, if they're doing things that warrant mandated reports towards abuse, your job is to report them into the system that does have more control over them. And that's why those systems are in place. And that is where your responsibility is. Sure. I think it's those those gray areas where there was something that was a wild notion. You ask about it. You don't get enough information to report, but now the family's scared and off they go. Then you document it and mm-hmm. close out your treatment notes, which is yeah. one of the things that seems to be missing here is these are the attempts that were made to continue to contact the family. This is the follow-up on these sessions. This is where this kind of questionable behavior may warrant actually filing an abuse report, even if that is not a mandated report, because this is that CYA cover your ass sort of aspects that I think a lot of us are either scared of, don't want to put the extra work into, or don't want to be liable for making a call that might seem overboard for situations, but don't let that be your as an individual decision. That that's that's the benefit of consultation or making a phone call. Let child and family services be the ones who say no to this. Don't make that decision on your own. 
pushing back just a little because I, I think that this case is so obvious. And so as a jumping off point, it's something where it's like, yes, this should have been reported. This, this kid was clearly very injured. The family didn't follow up appropriately and fell out of treatment. Like this was a, this was a child abuse report, cut and dry. I think there are those times when there are, I'm going to call them gray areas. You know, I, I think before the episode, I mentioned that I had a family where, you know, I was actually doing a home visit and the mom grabbed a house slipper and patted the kid on the bottom and said, get out of here. I got a session with Katie and then looked at me because I had described that child abuse reporting was anything besides an open hand on the bottom. And I looked at her, I was like, you're fine. <laughs> because there was no injury. There was nothing. It was, it was not ill-intended. It was something that she immediately recognized like, oh, someone from a different culture, a different family might see this as potentially violent, which it was not at all. But I think that there, there are those types of things where, where in truth, as clinicians, we are doing assessments of what is happening here. And whether it aligns with my agency's idea of what has to be reported or not, what, what is my decision? Because they're, you know, an open hand on the bottom, depending on the age of the kid and the strength of the adult could be way more harmful, is, is actually way more harmful than what I witnessed. And so I think it's that thing of when we're in that space where we're assessing some of these things that fall in a gray area, a kid that has a black eye because the, 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 they were fighting with their sibling and it's a known thing that's going on and that's why they're in treatment. I mean, it's, it's those types of things where it's like, well, mutual affray among minors is not reportable, at least in California, or it wasn't at the time. And so it's, it's, it's these gray areas where there's this nuance that I think feels really overwhelming. And for some folks, they'll lean towards reporting or consulting to identify if it's reportable. And for other folks, they use that as cover to not report when it feels too uncomfortable. And so I want to talk a little bit about that because I think that this case, I think is pretty obvious, but I think, you know, when we veer a little bit to the right, so to speak, I think people can start falling into to some of these traps. But what you're talking about, even in describing it, is you're putting it into a context. You're you're taking it out of gray and you're moving it back into black and white because of the context. And that is proper child abuse assessments is what many people struggle with in this conversation is we want a definitive line. And even though the very same actions between two different client households may be exactly the same, the outcomes of them might be extremely different. And that's where our role as clinicians and as mandated reporters is to ask the evaluative questions in in the appropriate ways to determine what makes it definitive in one situation as a mandated report and what makes it definitively not. And that you are documenting that as, as your process, because good documentation on a good process, even if it's wrong, provides you a level of protection rather than doing, frankly, bad assessments and bad documentation. That's, And this is shown in the stipulation of Barbara Dixon here as it's not just the failure to report, it's also about bad documentation. It's also about gross negligence and incompetence. 
in the documentation and response to this that you have a responsibility to do all parts, not just come up with a decision. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. So taking a couple of moments on assessment, because you said we need to do a good assessment. The scope of, of this conversation, it does not lead to what constitutes child abuse because there's a lot of nuance from different states. And, and so we, we don't go there. But I think when you're looking at assessment, I think the first piece is what is the injury, right? That's what I was taught is start yeah. by defining the injury. If there's an injury, proceed that you are going to be reporting. You may not ultimately, but really, if you can't define an injury, you're going to have a lot harder time making it into this is abuse. And physical injuries, I think, are a little bit easier to define. I think emotional injuries for emotional abuse, which I think is a permitted uh, versus In California, it's permitted. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that... that's where it starts getting a little bit, I guess, kind of iffy for me is is there's a lot of stuff that can emotionally harm children that I think as a society, we we typically don't call child abuse. And so to me, I think there's that element of, okay, how do we how do we dig into that? How do we make sure that we're protecting the kids? Because something that's egregious and overwhelming and and truly abusive needs external intervention from an organization that can control the family, so to speak. I think things that are within the realm of this is an unhealthy household and they need family therapy. I think there's going to be some, some places there where folks are going to struggle to determine what goes over the level of abuse versus this family needs family therapy. So what do you think? You have a question in that? I'm saying, what are your thoughts on that? Because I I feel strongly that I, I, as an individual, I feel like I've had a lot of experience with this and I feel like I can, I can navigate through the nuance, but I, you're teaching new clinicians on this. And so when we're looking at this gray area where we're looking at really fine gradations to determine when is it reportable, when is it a cause for family therapy, Do you have advice? Maybe that's the question I was trying to get to. My advice is start with defining what the emotional injury is. Is it a change in behavior, a change in mood, a change in responsiveness, withdrawal from the parent or the alleged abuser in these situations that you're going to want to define what the abuse is, what that injury is? And then start working from there as far as this is what makes this an abuse situation. Child was responding this way before said event. Child was responding this way after the event. A marked behavioral change, a marked change in how they are grooming themselves. All of the things that we go through in proper education in our child abuse assessment sort of things of knowing what normal child behavior is in response to 
a parent getting mad at them and putting them in timeout, yeah, a kid's going to have a marked change of behavior from being loud or crying or <laughs> obnoxious or whatever it is that led to the timeout to afterwards. But if it gets pushed into, you know, shaming and, you know, withdrawal from the parents or not wanting to talk with them at all, these are more and more signs of moving into that abuse end of a spectrum of child responses. And that speaks to the second case. And and I think that this is really telling because I think that there's two kids that this happened with and it was the same clinician. And so I think that that speaks to a dynamic for this clinician, whether it was the agency's interaction with her or her own stuff. But regardless, in the second case, there was a clear change in behavior after a visit with an uncle who had theoretically sexually abused him. There was, I, I didn't catch all of it. It seemed like it was very complicated, but there was the, the key elements were this behavior change that were clear from the description, I, I'm assuming in the documentation, that it was a big concern. And so I think we, I, I think we know when something needs to be reported. And, and I always describe it as that pit of the stomach, yucky feeling. I think it's, I think the last piece and, and, and we're running a little bit low on time here, but I think with the last piece is really getting past that yucky feeling and just doing the thing, because I think a lot of people get caught there. Um, I had a supervisor who uh, her outgoing message was, you know, like, hi, this is so-and-so da 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 da. And to my clinicians, if you're calling about suspected child abuse, you should report it. <laughs> <laughs> because we we know, I think we instinctually know, like this feels really bad. This feels really wrong. And and I, I may be missing that there are folks that that's not the case, whether they've had their own abuse and it feels normal to them. And and so there's there's different things that we want to assess, or maybe they're more sensitive to it. I, I think there's there's elements of this where I, I feel like we have a good sense, or many of us have a good sense of what should be reported, but it can be very hard on the relationship with the family. It can be very work intensive, you know, hours on the phone or writing up the reports, or at this point, I think it's mostly just typing it up and shooting it off to the interwebs. But I think there's, there's, it is a decision that has an impact every time someone decides to do a child, a suspected child abuse report. And, you know, wrapping this up, you know, not only is this child's, these two children dead, this therapist who was an associate at the time taking the responsibility, the California appellate court overturned charges against the supervisors in this situation, saying that they had no responsibility for this child's welfare, no direct responsibility. I am emphasizing to all of our listeners, you as the individual have the responsibilities in these situations. Your agency's rules do not matter. You have to follow the law. You have to keep people alive. Do your jobs. So you're saying buck up and deal with the discomfort because you got to do your job. Yes. I will, I will take that and I want to add a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think whenever I feel that discomfort and the the hesitation or the pushback around this is a report, and, and this happens across the board, whether it's for child abuse reporting, dependent adult or elder abuse, obviously outside the scope of this conversation, I sit with it for a minute and I, I think about what what is the purpose of this report? And if you've done a good assessment, you've identified a real injury, you've identified a, a pattern of abuse or even a, an incident of abuse that is reportable by contacting the appropriate agencies, first off, you're covering your own behind, which isn't the, the most, I guess, compelling for some folks, but I think it is a compelling reason to do it. But hopefully, you're also getting resources for these families to avoid killing kids, to avoid kids being severely harmed or traumatized for the rest of their lives. Child abuse reports can can trigger resources, additional resources they wouldn't have access to, and it can it, it can it can really be a helpful tool. As we know, it can also be very harmful for systems to go in and to tear families apart. And I I know that that's that's hard to to try to figure out where this lands. But for me, in my experience with my families working in all different places across the Southland, but South Los Angeles included, I think it's been something where in being able to work with the families and talk with them about why I'm making the report, what's happening with the report, working together with them on this, there's been healing for the families and and healing of generational trauma, which is a, a big thing to ask of a single day of making a report. But I think there is a pathway forward for some families when it's actually called out. And so getting, getting to that space can be helpful with the, the caveat that I recognize there are systems that harm families. I think it's, it's, it's a hard line sometimes. We will include links to the news articles that we used for this in our show notes. You can find those over at mtsgpodcast.com. Uh, you can also join our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group. Follow us on our social media. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Renoy. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 